Hi, I'm Rebecca Diem, writer, communications manager at The Word on the Street, and host of Read the North. I'm also currently pregnant, and I've been having some major ice cream cravings. Usually, I'm a salted caramel kind of gal, but lately I've been more into strawberry frozen yogurt and exploring new realms of citrusy sorbets. And I promise there's a point to this. <laughs> when we started to think about season two of the show, the idea that really got us excited was looking at what people are actually reading these days, and just as importantly, how they're finding the things they want to read. Because honestly, in the world of Canadian literature right now, there is such a wealth of amazing work being published. It's thrilling, but it's also daunting. The perfect book for you might be out there right now. But how are writers and publishers and booksellers and so many more people going to make sure it gets into your hands? In the literary world, unlike your neighborhood ice cream shop, we don't have flavors, but we do have something similar, and that's genre. For what we lack in rum raisin and mint chip and strawberry, we make up for with whodunits and fairy tales and coming-of-age stories. When we describe what we like or what we want to read next, more often than not, we start with genre. Genre is an incredibly powerful tool for categorizing books. But as we discover in this season of Read the North, it's not an all-powerful tool. There are limitations and exceptions. And the more we spoke with people about it, the more fascinating we found it. So fascinating, in fact, that we decided to dedicate a whole season of this podcast to exploring the contrary nature of genre. So... Welcome to Season 2 of Read the North. This season, our journey will take us through the lands of romance, horror, mystery, sci-fi, fantasy, and memoir. And at each stop along the way... We'll be speaking with writers, booksellers, publishing professionals, and more. In these interviews, we're taking stock of the state of genre in Canada and all the important behind-the-scenes work that goes into discovering your next favorite book. But first, we set out to discover if Canlit itself is a genre. We decided to set the stage by chatting with folks who are engaging with writing across every genre imaginable. So let's bring in our first guest someone who has literally managed to make talking about books her full-time job. So my name is Ariel Bassett, and I have been a book online human for the past 13 years. Ah, a little too long, a little too long. I started making book review videos when I was 16. I was in high school, I loved reading, and one day I typed the name of a book into YouTube and I found these young women across the world reviewing books. And I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. So I got my dad to help me set up a YouTube channel and I just started reviewing everything that I was reading. Um, and that just, I kept doing it and it kept growing and I did it throughout my undergrad and my master's. And by the time I graduated, haha, -ha, it was my full-time job. These days, the bulk of Ariel's YouTube videos are actually dedicated to the ongoing renovation of her gorgeous Nova Scotia farmhouse. But she also co-hosts a weekly podcast, Books Unbound, with Raylene LeMay, where they talk about book news and everything they're reading. 
And over the past 13 years, she's talked about hundreds, maybe even thousands of books on her YouTube channel, which, by the way, has over 300,000 subscribers. So, yeah, she's basically a professional book recommender. You're totally right that a big part of my job is trying to convince people to read books. And I love that. And so in that way, I do think that I am doing a bit of the kind of work that maybe a person who writes synopses does. A big part of my job is like when I'm recommending a book is putting the synopsis in a way that really excites people. Um, so like filtering that book down to its essence. This is another, oh guys, this is also why I absolutely love movie trailers. I'm literally subscribed to like five different movie trailer channels. I just watch movie trailers all day long because again, it's the same art of taking this massive work and then trying to distill it into this tiny little nugget so that people know what the heck this thing is. And like you want to tantalize them, but you don't want to spoil them. Oh my God, what a fine edge. Um, so basically, yeah, I find myself trying to make the synopsis as juicy as possible. Um, but then I will always give a little bit of a personal reason why I connected with the book. So I'll be like, you know, this made me think about this in my own life, or I really liked this element. I do try as much as I can to embrace like my subjectivity and be like, I'm not trying to be objective about a book. I'm just being like, this is Ariel's take on this book and Ariel liked it. <laughs> and, and usually that's enough for people to be like, okay, yeah, I want to, hmm, maybe I will look up that obscure graphic novel. I love that. I love that. But I wanted to ask when you're, uh, when you're finding books and discovering books to share on the podcast or previously on your, your booktube channel, um, how did you, go about discovering new books? Like, what was your process like? I have never had a hard time finding what to read. I have a hard time reading everything I want to read, but not finding stuff. I feel like stuff is just constantly coming at me. Either I'm finding new stuff by friends recommending it to me directly. So I have so many bookish friends and they'll just message me and they'll be like, Ariel, I just finished this book and you need to read it. Or I will go into bookshops and spend just a long time looking around. I, there's nothing I love more than walking around a very well curated indie bookshop. Like that is where I find a lot of the best books that I read is just by trusting booksellers. Um, but then also whatever the heck bookstagram is now is what I is like a huge part of how I find books as well like just I follow a lot of book accounts and a lot of publishers a lot of authors and so a lot of books are just constantly being thrown at me in case you're unfamiliar booktube bookstagram and booktalk are all social media communities that developed around a shared passion for books but of course if you have Ariel's job not only do you need to find books to read you also need to figure out what you're actually going to recommend. I mentioned her more than 300,000 subscribers, right? A recommendation on Ariel's podcast or her YouTube channel can give a book a huge boost. And as a Canadian book world influencer with a huge international following, she has an amazing opportunity to give local talent a leg up onto the world stage. I make a really big deal of highlighting books that are Canadian when I happen to be talking about them. Like it, it never goes unnoted. I won't be like, and I read this really good book. I cannot then say, and it's Canadian. <laughs> um, like you say, my audience is really international. 
So on YouTube, for example, like it's almost half of my audience is American. And then the next big chunk is British, actually. Um, not that everyone needs my statistics here, but then it's only third place that's Canadians. And then after that, it's a lot of other countries, right? Um, and it's the same way for our podcast. And so I find it really exciting to be able to bring Canadian books to other people. I think we're writing such beautiful, interesting, cool things here. And I think I also have that little tiny thing that's like, no, Canada is special and it is a little different. And it, like a, a high school experience here is different than a high school experience in the US. They didn't have poutine at lunch. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, it is a little different. So I do think that it's worth pointing out and I am always very excited to let people know and to celebrate those authors. Um, ooh, but let me tell you a fun little thing, a little anecdote of, of a problem I had doing this. A couple years ago, I read this incredible book called Albatross by Terry Follis. It's this crazy story about a teenager who realizes because of his gym teacher that he has the perfect body measurements to be a pro golfer. And he's never played golf before, so he goes and tries it out, and he's incredible! And suddenly he's like, it's like this giant saga of how he becomes an incredible golfer, but the secret is, he hates golf. He doesn't care about golf. And so it's like an existential crisis. He wants to be a writer. It's set in Canada. Like it's such a beautiful, it's a fantastic book. And I couldn't shut up about it when I read it and I recommended it on my podcast. But then it turns out that this book is not published outside of Canada. And I started getting so many messages from people saying, I really want to read that book that you mentioned, but no one sells it outside of Canada. And I was like, oh, wow, I didn't even think about that possibility. I didn't think about that, of course, because I can walk into a Canadian bookshop and get it. That's a little logistical difficulty. So logistical difficulties aside, all this begs the question, what is Canadian literature anyways? Every time you say Canadian literature, I can imagine it with capital letters. Yeah. I'm, li I'm like, <laughs> it feels like Canadian literature. Um, I love, oh God, I love this topic. And I mean, I guess, I guess what came to mind for me right away and upon reflection, I really couldn't for myself improve upon this definition would just be a book written by a Canadian author who is attempting to say something about Canada. And that leaves it a little vague, but I think it has to be a little vague because I do think that a lot of the time genres are mainly used for bookshops and for libraries. They're a way to sort things. When you walk into a bookshop, you just, you're like, how the heck are we supposed to sort these millions of books that we have? So I find that it's useful for sorting, but I don't know if it's that useful for um, trying to pinpoint a book. Because I think, of course, any canlet that you talk about is also going to be three other things. Um, it could be sci-fi and speculative or horror or whatever, but it's also canlet. This feels like the perfect time to bring in our next guest, a bookseller who also thinks that Canlet isn't particularly useful for pinpointing a book. One of the problems with a, for me, I guess though, with a term like uh, or the you know the idea of Canlet, is that uh, if it's a national literature, then its identity really seems to loom larger than the the particular books that are or aren't included within it. 
Before we get any further into his hot takes on Canlet, we'll let him introduce himself. My name is Kyle Buckley, and I have, uh, well, I've been working here at Type Books um, ever since, almost ever since uh, we opened our doors. We're in our 17th year of, uh, of being a bookstore right now. So Type Books is a, um, well, it's a fantastic independent bookstore in the city of Toronto. We've got three locations actually now. We're here at our Queen Street store. This was our first store. We've been here for coming on 17 years now. And, uh, you know, we like, uh, we like to sell books directly to people. Type Books sells a lot of Canadian and Indigenous literature. But they're not moving those titles by placing them in a canlet section and watching them fly off the shelves. Often, their booksellers are helping people overcome negative associations they might have with the term. A lot of the time... We are asked a question that's something along the lines of, um, is there is there Canadian literature that isn't boring? Or <laughs> and that's because you know, and that's that's because of course they a lot of the time people's relationship with um, with an idea of a national literature comes from school and comes from this was on my grade ten reading list or whatever, and you know you were probably bored because you were a high school kid and you were in a high school class. And, and they told you to read <laughs> yeah, it. <laughs> um, so and that can be a lot of fun because you could show someone like that. You could show them writing by Sheila Hetty. And that's quite, quite surprising to people as, oh, this counts as Canadian literature. Or you could show people writing by Billy Ray Belcourt and be like, oh, this counts as Canadian literature. This this looks weird. It's sort of a memoir. It's sort of poems. And he's talking about his sex life. You know, it's, there's all sorts of, um, all sorts of avenues you can, you know, escape boredom with. So a lot of the time that, that question about Canadian literature, it's sort of a starting point, but to me, the more like important or kind of the more interesting aspects of it are just the just like that idea of finding a book that is interesting, like escaping the boredom from, you know, that I've always associated with a particular category, but now I'll think about it differently because I found this book. And I, I guess I end up, you know, more interested in some of these kind of, I don't know, stranger or more organic feeling categories, at least like, that feel that way to me, that um, something like plotless fiction, for which there, you know, is, isn't and can't really ever be like a canon of plotless fiction literature. Um, as far as I'm concerned, what is or isn't plotless fiction is just whatever is on that shelf today. <laughs> <laughs> the Type Books Plotless Fiction Shelf is a beloved oddity at its Queen Street West location. It immediately caught my eye the first time I visited the shop, because it's not exactly a classic bookstore section. So I asked Kyle, what's the deal with plotless fiction? It's That shelf has been there almost the whole time that our store has been been around. And uh, I think it came about just from a conversation that uh, I was having with uh, some customers in the store. And we kind of happened on this, what we thought was really kind of just funny and charming, but also somehow just to us meaningful phrase, plotless fiction, being like kind of what we were always looking for. Ah. And then uh, that's this how the, the, the category began. So how would you describe plotless fiction? I w- wouldn't. You wouldn't? No, I try my best never <laughs> to, um, to explain or describe it. 
um, other than just to say, you know, these are kind of enigmatic, sometimes challenging, interesting little, usually weird little books. <laughs> There's a lot that Kyle has to consider when shelving a bookstore's worth of books. After all, he can literally make up any section he wants. But also, things have to be logical. As Ariel suggested, genre can play a big role in signposting, and that definitely comes into play at type. Here's Kyle walking us through the store. This table, all fiction. It's our first sort of, you know, big display table. It's a new and noteworthy fiction, nonfiction on this table here. So I guess I talked a big game about breaking down categories, but the tables are kind of still a holdout, you know? So we've got to decide which table a book is going to go on. And there's the uh, plotless fiction over there. Here we have these books organized by color as a kind of side lamp. <laughs> uh, it's all bright, you know, yellow and orange because we had so little sun all winter long. Was that literally how you guys decided so on literally, this display? Yeah, we thought it would just... Um, my colleague over there, Claire, made this display. It's lovely. Yeah, it just cheered people up. And then we've got plotless fiction over here, which is, of course, not only a category and shelf in our store, but also now we've got plotless fiction t-shirts. Ah. Yeah, so soon we're going to be, you know, taking over the world. I need to pick one of those. Um, and then, you know, fiction, poetry, graphic novels, essays, self-help books. In this, you know, it's mostly sort of uh, subject-based categories here in the middle room. A lot of cookbooks, food, history and memoir and music and sports, movies, etc. And then, right here at the back, our kids' room. Uh, which has everything from, uh, you know, board books and storybooks, like picture books, to young adult novels about either heartbreak or dragons, or sometimes both. A lot of books, you know, could really, in some a lot of interesting ways, be fit nicely into so many different categories. And then one idea is, well, maybe you make sure that that book is shelved in all of the categories it could be in, whether it's cultural studies and memoir and environmental studies and whatever else. But I kind of like to pick whatever spot makes the most sense um, to me for for the book to be in. So that therefore, say, every, anyone working at the store knows where it is. So if someone asks for it, could go there and find it. But also, I'd like to come to that determination sort of by paying attention to customers. For instance, memoirs written by musicians. When people want, uh, you know, a, a memoir by Patti Smith or a memoir by whoever else, flee from Red Hot Chili Peppers. They don't go to the memoir section to look for it. They go to the music section. It's just something that tends to happen. So memoirs written by musicians makes more sense to me to shelve them in music than in memoir. You see, it isn't knowing genre inside and out that makes a bookseller great. It's knowing their customers inside and out. And really great booksellers know how to connect their customers with the right book for them. Like, I like that idea of having a, like a lo kind of long-standing relationship with, with our sort of community of customers. And when someone comes in, I like already knowing sometimes, being like, oh, look, this just came in. I think it's perfect for you. 
and it, that's a lot of fun when then someone is just willing to just be like, sure. I mean, it's always fun to recommend books you love to people. Mm -hmm. That's always fun. And that's a really kind of, I think, really sort of special experience. But it's also sometimes you want to recommend a book that it actually might not matter if it's something you love. You just, you figure, I think this is the kind of thing you're really looking for right now. Yeah. When you're looking to make those recommendations, like what are the most important elements that you need in order to make like a good book recommendation to someone? The question I like to ask people a lot of the time is, uh, which wasn't something I think I, wasn't a question I think I sort of formed um, intentionally. It's just something I found myself frequently asking people in the store. They were looking for a book. I say, what do you want that book to be like? And if they, they might then, they might say, I just, you know, I want a novel that's character-based, that's really fun and easy to read. I want a true crime story. That would, but sometimes they just describe how they want to feel while they're reading it. Mm. You know, something that's going to surprise me, something that is going to really get my brain moving in a direction or in a way that I, you know, where, that it wasn't before. Something that's going to make me cry my eyes out. Something <laughs> that is not going to make me cry my eyes out. Whatever it is, you know. So sometimes genre is part of those conversations, but other times it isn't. And that might have something to do with this thing Kyle has noticed over the past 17 years of working at Type Books Queen. I think definitely in terms of genres intersecting, genre has become less and less important just because of, um, or even, I mean, we've been talking about Sheila Hetty, you know, and she wrote these fairly autobiographical novels that, uh, like, How Should a Person Be, I think was sort of her really most impactful or most popular book. And you could make a case that it doesn't really count as fiction. But then, I mean, she wrote it as a novel. And there have been a lot of books that are technically not fiction that just have been, you know, I guess there's this term creative nonfiction, although it, you know, it seems a bit strange. But yeah, I think that a major trend that has, has lasted as long as, you know, and sort of keeps even getting more so and has lasted as long as our store has is that the distinctions of genres, I think, have become less and less meaningful to people. Yeah, I guess like it's, it's more focused on the reader's experience and less on like the marketing categories. Yeah, I think that's the, I mean, that's what I hope at least. Based on Kyle's glowing recommendation, I actually did pick up a Sheila Hetty book the next time I visited the shop. I love being able to walk in and say, hey, I'm picking up this book. What else do you think I should look at? It's cool to hear that other readers and writers are freeing themselves from genre conventions and playing with story in whatever direction it leads them. But genre markers can still be helpful when it comes to marketing. And social media has opened up new and very powerful channels for discovering and sharing books. Here's Ariel again. I think the, the biggest problem that publishing has had for so long is just trying to get their books into ha the hands of readers. And like you mentioned, usually there are these very traditional routes that people go down, and by people I mean publishers go down, of like, let's put um, our book in the window of these bookshops and we're gonna pay for that to happen. Well, only X amount of books can have that done, right? Only a few books are gonna get that treatment and those are gonna be the books that have the biggest marketing. And those are only gonna be the few authors that the publisher can afford to really market that year. Whereas with social media, there is, as we know, probably in a bad way, endless cycles 
right? Like it's just endless trend cycles. So there is no uh, figurative store window. You can upload as many photos of as many books as you want. And then those publishers can share those in a way that isn't physically limited. So I think that's kind of probably a really big deal. And <laughs> I do think that a big part of it for Instagram and for BookTube is aesthetic focused. And I don't think that's bad. Like I love books and a big part of that is the object. Like I love the object of a book. I love how beautiful a book can be. And I find that the books that get big on Instagram or or YouTube or, or uh, anywhere else on the internet are books that have beautiful covers a lot of the time, right? I'm seeing these really gorgeous covers or, and I think this is so interesting, like reissues of older books, but now we're getting better covers for them. I'm like, that's driven by Instagram. You can't tell me that that is not driven by Instagram. I mean, we've all heard the saying, don't judge a book by its cover, right? But the fact is, we are absolutely judging books by their covers. Sometimes a gorgeous, intriguing cover is what sells the book. And that's definitely something our next guest has to think about. So my name is Sophie Paz Lang, and I am a designer at uh, Tender Book Group, which is the children's imprint of Penguin Random House Canada, and have been at Tundra for almost two years at this point. Sophie has worked in publishing for more than five years now. In her experience, designing a book is about much more than just a great cover. So yes, we do consider um, the book as a complete package. So it's not just the the front cover, although that is like a huge part of what helps to sell the book. But it is um, considering, you know, all aspects of the package, considering the book as an object. So especially as a designer of picture books, the visual look and feel of the book is so important to young readers and um, being able to pick it up and flip through it. How does it feel in your hand? All of that is something we consider. The actual design process isn't one size fits all. It changes based on the kind of project Sophie's working on. When it comes to designing for, let's say, a novel, I will generally get the manuscript from the editor um, at a like, you know, a fairly later stage. We're not in the development process anymore. It's gone through some rounds of editing and stuff like that. So I will give it a read and make all my notes and stuff like that and sort of begin the design ideation and process and doing sketches or sort of mock-ups. And then it will be discussed internally with the editorial group, with marketing, with sales. They will all have sort of input at this point. And of course, the author, the creator will have input. And um, from there, we'll narrow down our ideas into what the, the final product will be. When working on the children's side, you're starting this process sort of a lot earlier and a lot more organically with the illustrator um, as you're developing the sort of like visual look of the book. You can, you're working on the cover design sort of in tandem with how the illustrations in the interior are developing. Yeah. 
So like when you approach projects, in what ways would your work be informed by the genre of the book that you're designing for? That's a really interesting question. The The cover of your book is going to sort of distill the essence of what you're, what the book is about. And within, you know, kind of our marketplace, there are sort of visual conventions that we understand for books like a mystery book or a science fiction book or, you know, uh, historical fiction. All of these different books have very different visual languages and uh, looks to them. So say something like a mystery novel, a lot of the times there is, you know, a very specific look to a more gritty thriller, sort of hard-boiled type of mystery novel. You'd have like high contrast photographs and large sort of blocky or uh, sans serif type or something like that. But also within the mystery genre, you can have something like, you know, uh, a cozy, humorous mystery. And that can have a completely different look, something, you know, more with pastel colors or paper textures or a small illustration or, you know, kind of retro fonts or something like that. That can be a completely different visual look, even though they're within the same genre. And we're using design and color and and form and type and texture to distinguish these two these two ideas that are within the same genre. All the choices Sophie makes in a design act as clues that help us to mentally categorize where a book belongs. But those choices aren't only influenced by genre. They're also influenced by broader design trends. I think that a lot of the time the kind of the market dictates um, what people are interested in. And if we see something that's working in the market, we use that to, to compare to our book. And we say, this is working really well. What can we do that is similar, but also new and fresh? So my job as the designer is to, you know, look at these comparable titles and say... I'm going to make something similar, but it will also be different. It's not going to be a straight copy. It's going to be bring something new to it. And I do that through the choices that I make, the picking the illustrator, picking the fonts, picking the colors, picking these sort of things. And that's the unique voice that I bring to this book. Nice. Where would you like to see a cover design head in the future? Like, what are your aspirations for cover design? Oh, great question. Make the type smaller. Make the <laughs> visuals bigger. <laughs> that's not That's not exactly... Um, no, that's a good point. Because yeah. I feel like, you know, when, when everything got condensed down to, like, internet thumbnail size, that really must have had an impact. Yeah, that's something we, we kind of look at all the time. Uh, how does this look thumbnail sized? And I don't think that's I don't think that's a bad thing. I think this is we are working to to meet people where they are and and how they find books. And a lot of the time it is through social media. It is through online shopping. And that's just an important consideration that we need to put into place. So I think I, I, I joke a little bit that we need to make the type smaller, but <laughs> But um, no, it's it's absolutely an important part of what gets books into readers' hands, which is ultimately 
what everyone wants. So social media, discoverability, genre, trends, those are all huge factors when it comes to putting together the total package of a book. But what about all those books that don't really fit anywhere? The genre benders, the trend defiant, the hard to place, the plotless fiction. Sometimes a book lives in its own unique niche that doesn't really have an existing visual language. So then what? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think especially for like literary fiction, which can be so broad, it's kind of about capturing the the mood of the book, I suppose. Mm. Is it, you know, is it mysterious? Is it somber? Is it a little more humorous? So it's about finding what the mood, the vibe, um, what the essence, the tone of the book is, and then the imagery. The imagery can can shift. The imagery can be different. But it's really about understanding the tone and the voice of the book. Ultimately, genre, it's just vibes. <laughs> genre contains multitudes. It's a useful classification system. It's a powerful marketing tool. But it's also, sometimes, something that we're making up as we go along. Do you have any favorite genre or genres? Oh, yeah. I think um, I really am one of those annoying people who just loves reading in all genres. Like, when I go to the bookshop, I'm excited to go everywhere. I need to see everything. Right now, and I don't know if it's going to be a favorite genre, I'm I'm trying to read biographies. I have a bunch of biographies that I realize I've accumulated and I'm like, I could see myself being a biography gal. Like I could be this person who's read that, you know, that giant Sylvia Plath brick that came out a few years ago. It's like literally, it's like 1200 pages. I'm like, yeah. And suddenly I'm intrigued. Um, But my favorite, my favorite books that I, I tend to pick up are like bored women you know like women who are bored um my my co-host my best I friend really that. that should be she, a shelf on at the book yeah shelves. yeah like bored women she called it unsound women unsound women and i think that's also very good where it's just like women who are like there's something wrong and they're a little bored i'm like i love that genre if type books wants to have a plotless fiction shelf and ariel wants to say her favorite genre is bored women Who are we to say those genres aren't real? After all, they are the experts. And I'm all for taking the traditional boundaries of genre and tearing them wide open. But I'm also really curious about what other genre fans think. In this episode, we've spoken a lot about literary fiction, which is often associated with the term canlit. But there are so many talented Canadian and Indigenous writers who are winning global accolades for their work in science fiction, fantasy, mystery, thriller, horror, romance. And we can't forget about creative nonfiction and memoir, the ultimate crossover event between reality and storytelling. Over the rest of this season of Read the North, we'll dig into each of these quote-unquote genres and discover which rules were made to be broken, the core elements that our experts think are crucial to uphold, and how readers are finding their perfect match in an era of unprecedented literary abundance. Join us for interviews with authors, booksellers, and industry experts as we explore all the flavors in this great literary ice cream shop. And I'm hungry again. For books. And also ice cream. 
Thanks for tuning in to Season 2 of Read the North. The show is hosted by me, Rebecca Diem, and produced and edited by Quentin Bradshaw. Theme music and scoring are by James Ellerkamp. Production assistance and episode artwork is by Haley Richardson. Thank you to our guests for this episode, Ariel Bissett, Kyle Buckley, and Sophie Poslang. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show by subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing it with a friend. Read the North is a co-production of The Word on the Street Toronto and CGRU 1280 AM. For more CGRU programming, you can tune in and listen live at cgru.ca. To keep up with The Word on the Street and all the latest festival news, be sure to give us a follow on social media at Toronto WOTS or sign up for our newsletter at toronto.thewordonthestreet.ca. New episodes will be released bi-weekly all summer long. Tune in live on CGRU 1280 AM or at cgru.ca every other Wednesday and subscribe to Read the North on the podcast platform of your choice. Thanks for listening.